Welcome to Neary's PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. As a candidate for president, Donald Trump committed to moving the U.S. Embassy to Israel from its current site in Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. If the incoming Trump administration follows through, how should it proceed? Will long-predicted fallout among America's Arab partners materialize? And could an embassy relocation play a positive role in reinvigorated American engagement on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Right now, the only diplomatic representation in Jerusalem is in West Jerusalem, but it's to the Palestinians. The words Jerusalem and uncontroversial should not be used in the same sentence. Everything about Jerusalem is controversial. Join us next for a conversation with the scholars David Mikofsky and Khaith Alomari about a potential American embassy in Jerusalem. After this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. Joining us today are Khaith Alomari and David Mikofsky. Raith is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute and the former executive director of the American Task Force on Palestine. He previously served in various positions within the Palestinian Authority, including as advisor to the negotiating team during the 1999-2000 permanent status talks. David Mikofsky is the Institute's Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and director of the Project on the Middle East Peace Process. An award-winning journalist who covered the peace process from 1988 to 2000, David worked in the State Department in 2013 and 2014 as senior advisor to the Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations. Chaith, David, welcome. I'd like to talk to you both about the possibility that the incoming Trump administration may act to move the U.S. Embassy to Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, an issue our colleague Rob Satloff covers in a new presidential transition study just published and available on our website at washingtoninstitute.org. Let's start by taking a step back. What is Jerusalem, and how have definitions of the city's borders and current and future status evolved since 1947? When the UN, in 1947, issued the, uh, what is called the partition plan, they could not agree whether the whole city of Jerusalem would fall under Arab sovereignty or uh, the sovereignty of the newly established uh, Jewish state. So they decided to create what they called the corpus separatum. Corpus separatum means a separate entity that will be uh, managed by the United uh, Nations. It was partly because they could not agree whether it's the Arabs or the Jews who would have it, but also they couldn't agree whether it was uh, Catholics or the Orthodox or the various Christian denominations. So we had at that point a large expanded Jerusalem that included what is today known as uh, Bethlehem. After 1948, Jordan maintained part of uh, East Jerusalem and uh, named that as Jerusalem, and it was around six square kilometers. Uh, in 1967, Israel uh, took over East Jerusalem and expanded the boundaries, expanded again a couple of times. And today we had a very expanded uh, Jerusalem. It has, uh, uh, in common parlance, two sides. West Jerusalem, which was the part that was Israel uh, uh, pre-1967. And it has East Jerusalem, which is the contested part, which is uh, subject to the negotiations. The the issue was also that the corpus separatum of the the UN partition plan on November 29, 1947, was never recognized uh, by any of the parties to the conflict. Uh, Israel declared it null and void in 49. The Jordanians uh, really uh, were in charge of the eastern part of Jerusalem. 
that six square miles of the uh, of the old city and the immediate the eastern environs, and then Israel expanded it, uh, uh, you know, later as as Ray points out after '67, where the Palestinians made their own territorial claim. So U.S. policy was rooted in this idea in the partition plan that was never really accepted by anyone. And uh, really, we never, as the United States, followed through in terms of saying, okay, there's a new reality after 49, uh, that it, the U.S. de facto accepts Israel's existence, I think, 11 minutes after the state is born. Then Bure accepts it with the first parliamentary elections in 49, but never updates the policy to move its embassy to West Jerusalem. And so right now, you have a consul general in Jerusalem who sits on Agron Street in, in West Jerusalem, but he, if he's, he isn't the interlocutor with the Israelis, he's the interlocutor with the Palestinians in Ramallah. So it's, a, it's an anomaly what's going on. Uh, the Israelis feel it's a historic injustice because if the Palestinians got 100% of what they wanted, uh, even got the old city, got the East Jerusalem, they wouldn't get West Jerusalem. So why isn't that at least being addressed? While the other concern, though, is anything that you do in Jerusalem, could it, uh, you know, uh, you know, touch all sorts of sensitivities? And I'm sure we'll get into that. But I, but the historic part is an anomaly that it's the U.S. basically said we're going to wait, we're going to wait based on this 49 partition, 47 partition plan, which ends up not being accepted by anybody. But the U.S. policy is kind of frozen in 1947. And I would though say here that while the park is never accepted, the corpus separatum, the rest of the international community has. It has become the legal fiction that has defined how the international community engages this contentious uh, area. Unlike in many aspects of diplomacy, what starts as a legal fiction being, uh, assumes a life of its own. And right now we have this indeed uh, potentially outdated uh, uh, status, yet it is the status that uh, most of the international players still hold on to until the two sides agree to what the end uh, game is in Jerusalem, even though in practice, of course, the sides engage with West Jerusalem and Israeli and East Jerusalem, mainly engaging with the Palestinian inhabitants. Yes, I mean, we, the United States, of course, we go to the prime minister's office. Uh, our presidents have spoken at the Knesset all in West Jerusalem. We engage with the different ministerial offices, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, et cetera, et cetera, all in West Jerusalem. So it's not like we don't deal with that. We deal with it, but our embassy isn't there, and our ambassador is always in the in, in the car, so to speak, uh, from Tel Aviv. I, I would say, though, to pick up on something Wraith said, that everyone had this hope that we were maybe on the cusp of, of a grand deal that would solve this whole conflict with one of the core issues and as put forward in the Oslo Accords of 1993, I mean, resolving the status of Jerusalem. So... In, in a certain way, because people thought that a, a, a solution to the conflict might be in the offing, this issue was never had salience. Uh, the, the presidential candidates might speak about it, but as soon as the election was over, people didn't talk about it. But that was partly because people thought, well, look, it's going to all be superseded anyway by a deal. What's different, though, is having tried to, uh, as they say, hit the home run ball three times on solving this conflict, Bill Clinton in 2000, Condoleezza Rice with the Annapolis Conference and subsequent talks between Omer and Abbas in 2007 and 8, and the effort I was a part of with Kerry in 
there was a feeling that uh, you know uh, you know people said well maybe it'll be solved but now it's clear that it won't be so people are saying okay it's now we're coming up the 50th anniversary of the 1967 war um, you know this anomaly needs to be somehow dealt with and that's and I think that explains partly how this issue is is is, is gaining more salience also because of Trump himself who likes to say, you know, what I say I'm going to do. So this issue is suddenly facing people in a way that it hasn't faced them in a, in a while because they thought this issue was, was on, the, on, the, on the cusp of it being resolved, and now it's clear that it isn't. Well, even if the longstanding U.S. Uh, at least formal commitment to uh, the, uh, the, the, the 47 separation resolution, the, the partition, um, is outdated. There's another longstanding U.S. policy of of seeking to avoid prejudging the outcome of bilateral negotiations. So can I just ask quickly, is is there any portion of Jerusalem in which it would be um, uncontroversial for a future U.S. embassy to Israel to exist? Conversely, is there any portion of Jerusalem that it's beyond uh, a real doubt at this point that a future U.S. mission or embassy to a future independent Palestinian state would uncontroversially exist. Is there are are there geographic places within Jerusalem where those two potentially future facilities could exist or even be built uh, or built out soon, in the knowledge that a future settlement is going to keep them behind the appropriate national border? Maybe let me start by saying that the words Jerusalem and uncontroversial should not be used in the same sentence. Everything about Jerusalem is controversial. Uh, while, of course, as we talk about policy, we have to uh, address, uh, approach it from a rational uh, perspective and have a rational conversation, Jerusalem often defies rationality. With that in mind, it is very clear that in any deal whatsoever, West Jerusalem is part of Israel. In the negotiations, whether it is under President Clinton, whether it's under President Bush or under President Obama, the discussion was about East Jerusalem, not West Jerusalem. So it is very clear that uh, uh, West Jerusalem, of course, will be continue to be uh, part of Israel. On East Jerusalem, it continues to be uh, disputed. In no uh, negotiation that I am aware of did uh, the Palestinians drop the claim for East Jerusalem, or did the Israelis accept Palestinian sovereignty in East Jerusalem? The closest we got to, uh, at least in my experience, was uh, maybe in Camp David and some others where the Israelis were willing to grant Palestinian sovereignty in certain neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, but never throughout uh, the whole of uh, East Jerusalem. So in that sense, an American embassy in West Jerusalem will not prejudice the outcome of the negotiations, but it would still have political and diplomatic impact in, uh, in other arenas. In East Jerusalem, since the United States does not recognize a Palestinian state right now and is not willing and should not speak out about the final disposition of uh, East Jerusalem, it is impossible to think of an American embassy as such to the Palestinians at the moment. That's, that's right. I mean, look, in, in terms of Nothing about Jerusalem is uncontroversial. I think if there would be a U.S. embassy, it's clear we're talking about West Jerusalem, that, that 38 square uh, miles uh, that uh, existed before the 1967 war. I think anything beyond that point is not, is not imaginable. 
because that is something for the parties and you don't want to prejudge that. Even though West Jerusalem, like we've both been saying, is not contested, um, you know, there... I would say if the U.S. does pursue this approach, it needs to think very well and hard of how it frames the issue, how it consults with our uh, friends uh, in Israel and in the Arab world, and maybe in the Muslim world, to make those distinctions. Now, does that mean, uh, you know, going on uh, Jazeera, Al Arabiya, satellite TV to keep saying we're talking about West Jerusalem, not East Jerusalem? Um, does it mean uh, coming up with the creative ideas that maybe the, you know, the ambassador is going to stay in, uh, in Israel and West Jerusalem and maybe the consul general is going to stay in East Jerusalem? It, it's, um, there's nothing that's going to be simple here. And so, but I do think we shouldn't be impulsive in how we put it forward. We need to think, how do we prepare the ground? I mean, there is a little known fact that every American ambassador has every American president, excuse me, has to sign a waiver under American law. The 1995 Congress passed a law saying that the U.S. Embassy should move to West Jerusalem. And in fact, there is uh, no, allowed to be no major renovations of the embassy in Tel Aviv. If you visit the Tel Aviv Embassy, you'll know what I mean. Uh, but, um, the, but the American president could sign a waiver that says, in the interest of national security, I am waiving this law, uh, you know, not to move the embassy. Ironically, the first time uh, a new President Trump would sign this, uh, would have to be forced to sign a waiver, is June 1st, which, because Obama signed on December 1st, and June 1st is five days before the 50th anniversary of the 1967 war, where Israel won, uh, what it calls, reunified the city. And so... The irony is is rich here, whereby Trump is gonna we're gonna find out you know soon enough he may find it irresistible that on the 50th anniversary of this war involving Jerusalem, I'm at least gonna move an embassy to the western part, which the Palestinians don't contest. Uh, but I think because everything is contestable, uh, um, there's got to be a lot of thought into this on how we frame this issue in the United States and how does this administration frame it, how does it talk to it, the Arab and Muslim world, because there will be an, an assumption once the U.S. moves the embassy, the U.S. has recognized Israel as completely under, uh, Jerusalem is completely under Israel. And uh, you might have some jihadis that don't do nuance well, and they will, you know, certainly uh, jump to the worst conclusions. But the issue might not be whether it leads to violence but whether it has an impact also on the Palestinian Authority uh, going forward as we try to keep these two sides um, you know, from falling apart, certainly on the Palestinian side. So how we frame this issue, is there going to be, if you, we do it, and I do think we should think creatively, is there a way to think in a compensatory way uh, about maybe the Consul General in East Jerusalem or things like that. Certainly that's not something Israel will like too, I should say, because they will say what you're saying is that ultimately East Jerusalem will be sovereign and Palestinian. Right now, the only diplomatic representation in Jerusalem is in West Jerusalem, but it's to the Palestinians based on the 1947 corpus separatum. So there's a lot of irrationality in our policy right now, but how do we deal with it, I think is, is going to be, we have to be, do it in a very careful way. I mean, if I may just follow up on a couple of points here. I mean, while the consulate deals with the Palestinian Authority, it's not accredited to the Palestinian Authority. And I think that's, in, in diplomatic parlance, that is quite a distinction. Now, that said, 
we can and we should uh, sit here and talk about the nuance and the difference between West Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, what's subject to negotiation, what is not. The reality, as David pointed out, once an announcement like this uh, comes out, the way it will be received among Palestinians, among Arabs, among many Muslims will be different. When you hear Jerusalem, for most uh, Arabs, for many Muslims, you think of the holy sites uh, in Jerusalem. So there will have to be a lot of explaining uh, of an issue that is quite emotional. And you can be sure that even as we try to explain, and we've never been in the United States all that good in explaining to Arab uh, publics our positions, there will be those who will be explaining it in the other way. There is no doubt that Hamas and organizations like Hamas will try to whip up emotions based on that. There is no doubt that Iran will use that as a way of uh, whipping up uh, emotion. So as we do this, we have to understand that the nuance and the um, finesse that we can discuss in our diplomatic uh, dealings might not translate into public uh, perception and as such, no matter how much we try to fine-tune it, it might end up uh, falling like a big hammer on the uh, on, on Arab and Muslim ears. Well, Khraith, beyond uh, diplomatic messaging, are there any practical ways that U.S. policy that accompanies a relocation of the embassy improve the situation or even play a positive role in uh, renewed peace efforts? Um, for example, if, if a U.S. embassy to Israel located in Jerusalem provided better consular services to all of the residents of the municipality of Jerusalem, including those who are Palestinians and the likely residents of a future Palestinian state, are there things we can do beyond what we can say that could make such a relocation more palatable um, or even positive? I mean, first of all, uh, the consulate right now that exists in East Jerusalem, there's a consular section, actually it does provide services to uh, Arab and Jewish uh, residents of uh, the city. Um, I don't think it's very hard to imagine how on its own, uh, a move of the embassy can be uh, positive. There are steps that can be taken to maybe limit some of the damage, but some damage uh, will be done. Um, some of the steps that can be taken, for example, would uh, be to position this relocation not as a standalone uh, step, but as part of a wider American policy to the region. Today, as we speak, uh, many in the Arab world, many leaders in the Arab world, are actually looking forward to a new administration and to a reset of relations with the new U.S. administration. It's no secret that uh, many traditional uh, Arab allies of the United States have been uncomfortable with uh, the Iran deal, with what they perceive as tolerance for Iran's destabilizing behavior, what they perceived as sympathy by the outgoing administration to some Islamist uh, uh, ideologies in the Arab world. And whether these uh, perceptions are right or wrong, they are perceptions. So they're looking for a reset. If, one, if the new administration comes to our regional allies with a comprehensive plan that deals with various aspects of uh, the issues and the concerns that they have, then it might be more palatable. But as a standalone, it will be difficult and will not only create difficulties for the Palestinians and uh, possibly, you know, spill over to the Israelis, but also to some of the Arab allies who want to build the relationship. Of special note here is Jordan. Jordan has a, a, a specific role when it comes to Jerusalem, a role that's been recognized in the Jordan-Israel Peace Treaty. 
which the U.S. was a witness. And Jordan is very sensitive to any changes in Jerusalem. Already the Jordanian uh, government has uh, spoken against a move of the uh, settlement, and a mo- oh, sorry, of the embassy. A move of the embassy will put Jordan in a lose-lose situation, if done, again, in a crude way. On the one hand, they can ignore it and face the wrath of their public and those in their opposition who would want to use it to undermine the government and the peace treaty with Israel, or they could, uh, for the sake of uh, uh, appeasing public opinion, uh, take diplomatic steps like recalling their ambassador to Washington, etc., things that will harm the Jordan-U.S. relation, which is key to Jordan and which is uh, beneficial to the U.S. So as we think of this issue, we should not think of it only in the way that uh, affects negotiations or the U.S. relation with uh, Palestinians, but how it influences the development of U.S. relation with uh, Arab allies who will be affected by such a move. David, if, if you were back at the State Department advising the Secretary of State or our negotiating team, are there any actions that you would recommend either taking or avoiding in addition to the messaging that would be required around an embassy relocation? Look, if it was somehow packaged together with next steps in coexistence, uh, Dennis Ross and I are coming out with a paper on what these next steps could be, what I call the single instead of the home run ball, uh, Not because I don't think we could solve the whole conflict. I think that would be easier uh, because it would be seen as part of a package on coexistence. Yet, part of the issue is it's unclear if this administration coming in is, is going to pursue uh, any new steps on coexistence. But I, I think that's the easiest uh, to do because it wouldn't be a standalone, as, as Wraith points out. Uh, but if you're going to go the standalone route, then I think you've got to think of offsets. You know, what could be, you know, could you say here, the ambassador is going to start uh, working out of the consulate for example, uh, for a while. And uh, the consul general might be working out of the uh, East Jerusalem consulate, which is often dealing with, um, you, know, cons- you know, visas and things like that. In other words, get people used to the fact of, of having two Americans uh, working out of Jerusalem. Anyway, it would take a while for an embassy to be built. But maybe show some understanding of, um, you know, sensitivities on all sides. Uh, because I do think there's an anomaly here, and I think that we need to think out of the box a bit by saying, how do we uh, right the ship, so to speak, and uh, it might mean taking steps to both sides. I think the coexistence package to me is, is, is preferable and possible, and the other way would be to, um, you know, to, to do it, if you're doing a standalone, that, that you'll be taking steps also on the Palestinian side. This doesn't mean the U.S. recognizes the sovereignty of Palestinians in East Jerusalem. Uh, but I think we got uh, something along those lines need to be considered now. Wraith raised an important part, which is like, how do the Sunni Arab states, what do they think? Because they're a key piece to this, partly in no small measure because Israel and these Sunni states have developed an under-the-table working relationship based on common threats. With the Gulf states, it's the fear of Iran uh, segueing off the nuclear deal, having a more kind of robust uh, regional presence in a way, to, uh, you know, given its more hegemonic aspirations. With, uh, with Egypt and Israel, it's uh, working um, together against ISIS in the Sinai or against Hamas in Gaza, or with Jordan, it's dealing with ISIS and the refugee flows coming into Jordan. So 
the interesting, the good news in the region is how there is this kind of under-the-table set of relationships. Now, what does the embassy issue mean to that? Is it, are the Arabs going to say, look, pro forma, we're going to have to oppose this, but really our attention is elsewhere? Or Wraith says in Jordan, it might not just be pro forma, it might be something beyond that. And uh, clearly for Israel, if they hear from the Arab states, you know, please, I'm imploring you, don't touch this issue, that might mean more than even coming from the U.S., because Israel wants to keep uh, these Sunni relationships uh, in a very strong spot, uh, even if they are under the table. So how the Arabs react, I think, is not an irrelevant uh, consideration. Is it pro forma or is it not pro forma? So it's it, this is like playing almost six-dimensional chess. And I mean, often, I must mean, we, when we think about this issue, we focus on the obvious and the immediate. Will it lead to violence? Will it not lead to, uh, to violence? Uh, it's impossible to predict uh, that, though it's worth saying that the last two major rounds of violence uh, between Palestinians and Israelis were triggered by events uh, in Jerusalem. But I think, and I think what I hear David saying, is that we have to think beyond that. We have to think of an issue that has wider ramifications beyond the two parties. And as we formulate policy, we have to take into account its impact beyond the, uh, the immediate. In my view, it is very difficult to imagine this being not disruptive. Uh, there are ways of mitigating the disruption. And that would have to include uh, definitely deep consultation, intensive consultation of everyone involved. And that, as I, we mentioned before, goes beyond simply the Palestinians and the Israelis. Does the, the perceived or understood origin of uh, an American embassy relocation matter? Does it make a difference, for example, if Arab and Palestinian uh, publics or leaders understand a potential embassy move as a fundamentally growing out of domestic American political imperatives rather than as part of an American global effort to get everyone to relocate their embassies from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? This, you know, this messaging about that we're talking about the West and not the East Jerusalem, if you're going to go this route, you've got to hammer this at every level saying what this is and what this isn't. This isn't an effort to prejudge the status of the old city or East Jerusalem. And I think that, you know, some would say, look, that'll work on the governmental level, but the same governmental people who understand the distinction will say, but the street won't understand it. And, uh, and, that, and they will try to argue for the status quo. So I, I don't know, you know, I, I just think there's no shortcut to consultations and to seeing, to defining the problem, to see if maybe some creative packages can be done along the lines that Wraith and I are suggesting. Like I said, the issue is not just the fear of violence, but what is the accumulative effect at a time that uh, it is very possible in 2017 that we're going to see a lot of other uh, pieces to this puzzle. Um, you know, that uh, you're going to see cut and aid the, Pal- the Palestinian Authority. You're going to see, we, are you going to see more Israeli settlements activity beyond the barrier, outside the security barrier? So, you know, you never know what's the straw that breaks the camel's back. In theory, it shouldn't break it at all because, like I said, it's West Jerusalem. And also, the time that there was violence, like I take the Jerusalem Tunnel incident of 1996. Uh, On one hand, people didn't think that if they built a tunnel in the old city of Jerusalem, it would lead to 17 dead Israeli soldiers and 70 dead Palestinians. But 
what you did have in that case, which you don't have in this case, is that you were right near the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, on the Temple Mount or uh, Haram al-Sharif. And that, and Arafat, who I think wanted to fan the flames, he knew that this, this, this tunnel didn't go under Al-Aqsa. But once you invoke Al-Aqsa, you take this thing like to uh, DEFCON 3 uh, nuclear alert. And so here you don't, because you're talking about the western part of Jerusalem that doesn't even involve the old city, let alone Al-Aqsa. But the question is, is the skill to, that you can message this to people and they, and they understand that you're not out to prejudge these other areas. That, that I think, is, is, is a real question. And that's where I think Wraith and I both think more consultation is, is, is better uh, than not. And we have to understand, as we message... You are dealing with an audience that, on the one hand, I mean, first of all, uh, is not all that attuned to uh, American domestic politics, and many of these arguments will go above the heads of the, uh, or will have no resonance with the intended uh, audience, but also you will have to contend with uh, a lot of conspiracy theories that will read into this a lot, whether some of these will be um, not malicious. Uh, simply a way of thinking, but many will be malicious and will be intending to uh, uh, create mayhem. And there is also no doubt in my mind that uh, there will be organizations like Hamas and others that will even attempt to accompany this messaging with acts of terror to further uh, fan the flames. So there will be those who will try to exploit it. There is no doubt about that. Uh, This has to be taken uh, as a given, and policies have to be put in in place to the extent possible to uh, deal with something uh, like this. But it will will not be easy, and it will certainly be an uphill uh, struggle to explain how uh, this to a very skeptical audience. If we look beyond the specific question of the location of the embassy to the larger principle of uh, the U.S. policy of recognizing the corpus separatum, uh, and and not judging the future status of Jerusalem. How can American policy most constructively adapt to Israeli and Palestinian attitudes towards Jerusalem and, and the aspirations of both sides to some level of national control rather than international governance over Jerusalem? I think the only way, again, putting aside the issue of moving the embassy to West Jerusalem, but as a general uh, rule, I think the U.S., whether it comes to Jerusalem or when it comes to other uh, issues, uh, should defer to the parties. Issues like the future of Jerusalem, issues like the future borders between the two states, the future of refugees, things of this sort, are such deep, fundamental issues for both nations uh, that go to the very core of their self-definition and to their sense of national uh, security and existence, that it is not the place of the United States or anyone else in the world to come and tell the parties how to uh, resolve uh, these issues. Bilateral negotiations are there for a reason. The parties have to make these difficult concessions on their own. They have to own them. What we should do in the U.S. and we should do in the international community is to encourage the sides to uh, reach a solution, to make it easier for them to reach uh, to go to negotiations, to even sometimes push them to go to negotiations, to offer them incentives if they reach a deal. We can do all of that, and we should do all of that, but what we cannot do and should not do is to tell the parties how to resolve these issues, because if we force it on them, they will find a way to get out of it. Uh, if you want stable peace, the parties need to own the concessions that they make. I would just say, as someone who favors the singles approach versus the home run, I mean, the home run being solved the whole conflict, including East Jerusalem, if I felt the Venn diagram sufficiently overlapped so 
there was going to be common ground between the leaders on Jerusalem, you know, we, you know, I'd say, let's go for a grand deal. But like I said, we've tried it three times and we've struck out. So I'm, you know, the definition of insanity is not doing the same thing all over again and expecting a different result. My view is to say, all right, what are the areas that we know? What we know is that even if you look at Abbas's peace offer in 2008 uh, to uh, uh, Omer, he said basically the Jewish neighborhoods in East Jerusalem are going to be part of Israel, except for one, you know, Jebel Ganeim or Har Choma, uh, which was built after the Oslo Accord was signed in 93, it started in 97, in the aftermath of the Hebron Agreement. So I think, you know, the flip side of that is to say, you know, if you build in the Jewish neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, and by the way, East Jerusalem here is more of a, a political name. It's technically northern and southern Jerusalem, uh, Gilo and southern Jerusalem, Ramot and northern Jerusalem, and some other neighborhoods. But, you're, but, but there should be a clear quid pro quo, which is to say, don't build in Arab neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, uh, because, you know, if we're going to defer some of these issues, but you're building in the Jewish neighborhoods, uh, and you know, and you allow building in the in the Arab neighborhoods, they will say we're not deferring this issue; we're conceding the issue. My view is basically to, in order to maintain the viability of a two-state solution, is to say, okay, here are areas you build, here are areas you build, and even if we can't decide who is sovereign by defining where each side builds, we take a giant step towards solving this issue. So. I don't think uh, I agree with completely with Ray that I don't think the U.S. can impose a solution, but I think we can make clear, you know, where each side builds, and in so doing, you could begin to see the contours of where a solution might look like. I'm afraid, though, that the Palestinian reaction to this would be, you know, Abbas has made the offer, but he would say that the offer was contingent yeah. on a deal. I, I fear right now that any action in Jerusalem is bound to be disruptive. I mean, look, it's, like, I think in, in reality, Israel is building. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I don't think they, they've stopped. But what I think needs to be is, like, a, right, uh, a bright red line uh, that says, uh, we know you're doing this anyway. You're not asking our blessing, but, but we're, we're, we just would be clear there's no building in Arab neighborhoods. I, because I feel if there's no bright lines there that... Any deferring of final status will be tantamount to be seen as conceding, and I think that will hurt on the Palestinian side. So I, I think there, there's got to be certain uh, uh, rules of the game, ground rules of do's and don'ts. It doesn't mean grand deals, like I, I don't think that's possible, but clear things of what you avoid doing, uh, uh, you know, during this period where we have not sorted out the sovereignty question. David Mikofsky is Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Project on the Middle East Peace Process. Chaith Olamari is a Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute. Thank you both. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. Production assistance comes from multimedia editor Neil Orman. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.